0: Any other fans of Calvin and Hobbes? Yes. Yes. Love these people. This old comic strip, Calvin and Hobbes. And in this comic strip, they had a game they would play. Do you know what it's called? Calvin Ball. Ball. What were the rules? There were no rules. And on the other hand, there were tons of rules. So this is the great society that we live in today. There is an official wiki of Calvin Ball rules. I would like to quote it for you. Please take notes. (laughs) Calvin Ball is a game invented by Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin Ball has no rules. The players make up their own rules as they go along. huh? Making it so that no Calvin Ball game is like any other. Rules cannot be used twice, except for the rule that rules cannot be used twice. And any (laughs) plays made in one game may not be made again in any future game. The game may involve wickets, mallets, volleyballs, and additional sports-related equipment. There is only one permanent rule in Calvin Ball. Players cannot play it the same way twice. For example, in one game of Calvin Ball, the goal was to capture the opponent's flag, whereas in a different game of Calvin Ball, the goal was to score points by hitting badminton shuttlecocks against trees using croquet mallets. Masks must be worn at all times (laughs) in Calvin Ball. These are not allowed to be questioned. Do you notice a few inconsistencies there? There are no rules, and here's all the rules about how we're going to protect the rule that there are no rules. Oh, and then these are the other rules that you need to follow, and it just goes on and on and on. Do you ever feel like you're in a situation where you're going, I I think there's rules, I just don't really know what they are? What am I supposed to do in this situation? I I love Hobbes there saying the score is still G to 12. No, Q, it's a Q. It's much smaller back there. It's like the art chart. Q to twelve. I don't know what that means who's winning. Um, somebody's winning. Maybe, unless there's a rule that nobody wins. I really don't know. So I've titled this sermon New House Rules. We've been looking at 1 Peter and how Peter is reaching out to these Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire, struggling with a society that does not believe what they believe, does not support what they believe, and is actually turning against them because they believe it. So in, in 1 Peter two eighteen through s- chapter 3, verse 7, we looked at that last week. And we looked at sort of this basic organization of Roman society, which I know was what everybody was so passionate about coming to church to learn. But we looked at, there were husbands, there were wives, there were children, he didn't really deal with the children in that passage, um, and there were slaves or servants. And in Roman society, your place, your position in society, and even your attitude towards others, the things that you would do on a day-to-day basis, all of it was determined, for the most part, by these rules about who you were, in society. You needed to live, this is the Roman way of thinking, you needed to live according to who you were. Slaves should not try to be otherwise. And so on and so forth. That was the Roman way of thinking. This held together, it was the glue that held together Their culture and their society. Now imagine the gospel comes in as we looked at and it says, You are set free in Jesus Christ. You have a new identity. You are, he goes so far as to say, You are a a chosen people, royal priesthood. This is chapter 2, verse 9, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. So they're saying, Woo, we're free. We get to live however we want. We get to make up our own rules now. We get to decide what makes us happy. On the one hand, that's a very modern way of looking at things. Freedom means the ability to get whatever we want. But it's clear, I think, from what, first, or what Peter deals with in First Peter, what Paul deals with elsewhere is that they struggled with the same things. Freedom now means no rules and I get to do whatever I want. And Peter is going to bring some structure to that idea and say, hold on a second. This new identity brings with it a new understanding of who you are. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, that's where we're going to be this morning, Peter gives new house rules for a new household. Because again, we talked last week about the household in Roman society, husbands, wives, children, slaves, and how that was their identity. Well, now he's going to talk about new identity in Jesus Christ. So let's look at this new household. What is it that is this new household? Starting in verse 8, we'll just look at verses 8 and 9. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Now, he starts with that phrase, all of you. Now, on the one hand, that's pretty obvious, right? That's you know, just all of you. But he's just finished a passage talking about servants, wives, and husbands, basic units of society. Now he's going to take that group and he's going to lump them all together and he says, All of you. All you Christian. If we were in the South, they'd say all y'all, I think would be the translation there. (laughs) Y'all. Probably depends on the region you're from. (laughs) Everyone. All of you. Together. And he's lumping them into one category, which was absurd in the Roman mindset, because everybody had their distinct roles. And now he's saying, no, no, no. All of you together, you have a job to do. You are a new people, and he's going to define them as a new household. The church becomes the new basic unit of society. The new identity that they have in society is identified by their relationship with Jesus Christ through the gospel and their relationship with each other through the gospel. He says, you have a new obligation, new house rules, and he's going to give five characteristics of this new household of the church. And the first is, be like-minded. Now, does that mean we all need to think exactly the same? That we're not allowed to have differences of opinion? We're all just cookie-cutter Christians, and we just all act and think and do and dress all the same way? And the answer is no. That goes against God's creative purpose, where he made us different. He wired us, each one of us different. Different skills, abilities, gifts, different perspectives. But it has to mean something. So what is it that we are to think the same on? Philippians chapter 3, verse 15 helps us. Paul deals with this a little bit. He says, All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. So there's that like-mindedness, this agreement. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. So he says there are some things we must think the same on and other things it's okay to think differently on, and God will help us to work that out. Now the context of that is so helpful. Philippians chapter 3, 7 through 14, Paul talks about his passion for Jesus Christ. So right before that, that thing about let's all think the same way, he goes into stating that his life is worthless compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Everything else that made up who he was, his identity, his background, his heritage, he says it's garbage. King James uses this wonderful, rich, gritty word, dung. It's dung. It's worthy to be thrown down the toilet. It's garbage. That's what he says. All of my life is garbage compared to knowing Jesus Christ. He wants to know Christ. He wants to live for Christ. So then when he comes to the Christians and he says, this is what we must all be the same on. This is the thing we must think exactly the same about. Jesus Christ must be first. Period. The gospel is the single most important truth that makes us who we are. We must agree on that. If that's not our starting point, we will always tend toward disunity and chaos. We must be unanimous and unified on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter looks at this the same way. He says, you've, you've been called together. In, in 1 Peter chapter 1, he talks about you are God's elect. That's verse 1. Then in verses 3 through 5, he speaks of their salvation. He starts with the gospel and he lays it out. He says, this is who you are in Jesus Christ. Here's your inheritance. This is your new identity. This household that Peter is defining, he says it has to start with an understanding of being like-minded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is astonishing is the number of churches, the number of Christians today, that are trying to base their church, base their unity on something other than Jesus Christ. In fact, all too often, that is the first thing that gets thrown out The concept that we are saved in and only in Jesus Christ is ejected out of the church, ripped out of the scriptures, and then they want to say, but we're still unified. Without that, we have nothing. We're just a group of people with various opinions and ideas, and we're just going to sit there and argue over them. Or we're going to come together over some opinion, some social movement, but we've taken out the one thing that we are called to be, instructed to be, demanded to be like-minded on. Jesus Christ. Peter wants them, above all else, in this new household of faith, the church, this new area or or group of people that they cling to as the culture is turning against them. He says, start by clinging to the gospel of Jesus Christ together. Get that right first. And then he goes on. Be sympathetic. We need to understand what other people need, what they're going through. Enter into their world, their stories. Listen to other brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just come and say, what am I going to get out of this? But how do I lift up somebody else? What are they going through? It says, love one another. The word that Peter uses here is be brotherly. Be brotherly toward one another. Which is interesting because it, it has so many different layers of meaning. On the one hand, love another as a brother... But also in their culture, to be of the same household, especially brothers, had some legal implications. There was an ongoing obligation to the relationship to show brotherly love, respect, honor. It had an action associated with it. They were to treat one another as brothers, close family. It was a family obligation. I wonder if we see each other as that way. In the church, to see we are obligated whether whether it's a brother or sister, we are obligated to treat them as a sibling in the household of faith. He says, be compassionate. This is interesting because I think in the Roman way of thinking, brotherly or brotherly love had to do with the actions and not so much the feeling. Don't get me wrong, there were feelings involved, but it was a social obligation. This is actually more about the feelings and less about the actions. Don't just show love. He says, be compassionate, tender-hearted. Be sensitive to the needs. Feel for one another. Do we look at our fellow believers and hurt for what's hurting them? Rejoice for what's rejoicing in their lives and what they are rejoicing for? And then he says, number five, be humble. We struggle with this one because I don't think we can understand that this was a despised virtue in Roman society. Humility was considered a sign of weakness. I'm not sure it's all that different today. In fact, in increasing measure, I think we are returning to that idea that humility is somehow less than what we should do. I think we see that in much of our public uh, debates. It's seldom that you'll see a show of humility. It's more often you'll see a show of strength or bullying, arrogance, strength, false strength so often. Roman society always looked with judgment on others. Those that were greater than you, you judged to be greater than you and needed to treat them as such. So if you were the servant, you looked at the master of the house, he is greater. Treat him as such. If you are a master of a household and you come across a servant, he is lesser than you. So you would treat him as such. Their actions towards one another were always defined by their judgments on one another. Peter, as all the other New Testament authors do, blows this out of the water. He says, Christians, don't think that way. Be humble. Show humility in the way you treat one another. The Christian family of the church is called to be different. We are people that believe that God Most High sent his son to die on a cross because we were living and lost in rebellion and sin. And we are who we are now because he died for us, saved us from our sins, and rose from the grave. That's our identity. Not what I have accomplished, not what I have achieved, not what I have worked for. My identity is because of Jesus Christ. If that doesn't lead to humility, then I suggest we have no concept of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel must always, always lead to humility. And so, with these five adjectives, Peter defines how the household of the church is to work, what it's to look like, these new house rules, how we are to treat one another, to be like-minded, sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and humble. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Our world needs to see that, because that is a display of the gospel of Jesus Christ when the world enters in and comes into the church or when we are out in the world and they see our relationships and they see the same thing that they see in their society each and every day, why would they believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? Your treatment of the person sitting next to you is an apologetic, a defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we say to and about one another is an expression and a defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in this new household of the church, Peter is saying, take this serious. It's not just about being a master and a wife and a child and a servant. He says, you are saved by Jesus Christ. This is how it is to define how you think. And then he goes on. Verse 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult." On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. How is this new household of the church supposed to interact with a world that does not believe what it believes at all? does not accept what it believes, does not want to accept what it believes, and is, as we've seen throughout the book of 1 Peter, is treating them poorly. They are suffering for what they believe. So how should they respond? The Roman way of thinking was, you better stand up for yourself. You better demand to be recognized and honored because that was their way of thinking. If you are great in Jesus Christ, you need to show them that you're great and they need to see you and treat you as such. And Peter says, no. No. Do not repay evil for evil. So what's he talking about there? The Roman society, much like most of the ancient societies, and I think to some degree our society today, had a concept of what's known as the retribution principle. Retribution was that justice equals returning in like or in kind. If you are bad to me, I have the right, almost an obligation, to be bad to you. If you are good to me, well, then I will be good to you. We return in like. It's retribution, and that is the establishment and the ongoing expression of justice in a world without God. Does Peter agree with that? Not at all. In fact, it's the exact opposite. In fact, it is the opposite because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you noticing a trend how it all goes back to the gospel? Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Retribution would say, while we were still sinners, God gave up on us. God walked away from us. God punished us. The gospel says, while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ did what we could not do. Died on the cross to save us. This new household of the church does not operate on the same assumptions of the world. We need to operate on different rules. The gospel demands it. The other question we need to ask is what is this evil that Peter's talking about? And this one's a little fuzzy. He's dealt in verse 8 with how Christians are to treat other Christians. So in 9, is he saying do not repay evil from another Christian with evil toward another Christian? Is he talking about evil within the church and the way we might hurt one another? It's a difficult question to answer. It's possible, it fits with verse 9, that he could be talking about that. I think there's certainly application there that within the church we shouldn't repay evil for evil. But I don't think it really fits the larger context of what Peter's talking about. He's talking about a world that is, at least feeling like to the Christians, and probably truly is, out to get them, showing evil toward them. I believe here he's talking about how Christians are to interact with the world. In chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That is the beginning of the entire section that we're still in, and we're getting toward the end of that section. So he starts by saying, this is how you are to live in relation to the world. So I believe he's specifically talking about how this new family, the church, is to repay, or rather not repay, the evil that is being done to them. Do we live that way? Do Christians today live in such a way that we do not repay the evil of our society with evil of our own? I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again. We are in election year. I am all too often embarrassed Embarrassed by my brothers and sisters in Christ, in the way that we speak about other politicians, parties, ideas, the things that are posted on Facebook, shared around coffee tables. It is right and it is proper to talk about politics. That's good, but are we repaying evil for evil? And the comment there isn't—is it evil? He's saying it's evil. You don't like candidate so-and-so. I don't even care what party it is. You don't like candidate so-and-so. That's fine. You think they're evil. Maybe you're right. Christian, the Bible says, repay that evil with blessing. It is a destruction of the gospel of Jesus Christ when Christians launch into personal attacks on people in society. Please, I beg of you in the cause of Jesus Christ, stop it. Before you hit send, read what you wrote and ask, is this a blessing or not? And if the answer is no, delete it and walk away. We have an obligation to display the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll get off my soapbox now. What does Peter mean when he says, to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing? That's a really interesting phrase. Also, some of you are doing the math and how long I'm taking on these points. Don't worry, the last point is much, much shorter, I promise. (laughs) Nobody likes math, right, until you're like halfway through a sermon and then we're all experts on it. What does he mean that you were called to this so that you may inherit a blessing? Peter uses this phrase "called over and over. We are called to be saved by Jesus Christ. We have been called into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We didn't do it. we were called to it. First Peter chapter one, verses three and five. Praise or three through five. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and His great mercy he has given us new birth, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So he says, you've been called to a certain inheritance, a certain future through Jesus Christ, guaranteed through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So whatever he's saying here, he can't say that your experience of that future, this blessing, is conditioned on whether or not you do the right thing. That would be against everything that Peter's just said. So what is he saying? Throughout the book of 1 Peter, we are called in our relationship with Jesus Christ to suffer. That is not a popular thing today. I don't think it's ever been a popular thing. It's not saying run out and seek it. Hey, try to be as miserable as you can. That makes you more godly. That's not what he's saying. But there needs to be a recognition that what we believe is different than what the world believes. The values that we are living is different than what the world believes. That the gospel itself convicts and confronts sin. And people don't like that. And so as we live and trust and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, suffering will be a part of that. It must be. All of this is summed up by understanding that we are God's chosen people. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So Peter says, you are God's people. Now we can look through all of scripture and say, what did the people of God experience? What did they go through? Well, fortunately, the Old Testament is full of just warm, fuzzy stories of how wonderful it is to live in a relationship with God and how peaceful everything is and how everything goes your way and God makes them all happy. No! (laughs) No, the Old Testament is a story of God's faithfulness and his people's faithlessness. It is a story also how he calls them out of their cultures. He establishes them and they are constantly bombarded by the culture around them that attacks them and undermines them. The Old Testament is so often an account of God's people suffering for what they believe. So when Peter says, chapter 3, verse 9, so that you may inherit a blessing. When he says you've been called to this, this lifestyle where people are going to treat you in an evil way and you are to respond with a blessing and that will lead to suffering. Then he says, so that you may inherit a blessing. He is not saying your salvation is conditional on whether or not you are a good Christian. It's not what he's saying. He's already said you've been called, you've been saved. What he is saying is that throughout all Scripture, God's way of saving his people has always involved suffering. So when we accept the call of salvation, when we are changed and brought from death into life, we have to understand that call will involve going through suffering. If that's what Israel went through, if that's what Christ on the cross went through, if that's what the early church went through, we need to understand that we may go through that as well. We've been called to live the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means we will experience evil from the world toward us. Our role, just like all of God's people before us, is to respond with blessing. An expression of trust in God, an expression of the display and the communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The salvation to which we have been called is a blessing that we can only begin to fathom. And as we trust in that and walk through the suffering, we are displaying that we believe the gospel is greater than whatever is happening right now. So we have this new household, new characteristics, new priorities completely different from the world around us, called to a specific way of living, this way of living. And this is one of many passages we could go to. We are called to being a blessing in this world, even when, especially when the world is evil toward us. Man, I don't think many people would hear that and go, sign me up. Because to live that way in requires an immense amount of trust in who God is. It is trusting that the Lord will bring justice. That God knows what he's doing. Look at verses 10 through 12. Peter here quotes out of Psalm chapter 34. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongues from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is one of the few Psalms that we know exactly when it was written. We know what the situation was. David was running from his enemies, like he did so often. As he is being faithful to God's calling in his life, he has to flee from people that are trying to kill him. Peter is taking that idea and looking at it and saying, "How did David deal with evil being done against him?" And so Dave, David, Dave, me and Dave, David writes Psalm 34, "To praise God for rescuing him out of this situation. It's like opening his journal and learning what he went through. The quote that Peter uses has two main parts. Look at verses 10 through 11. Who, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. That's what he's tying into to say, guys, do this. Remember what David said? Live that way. He was in a horrible situation, completely unfair. Everything had turned against him. And yet he said, do the right thing. Live the right way. Don't repay evil with evil. The answer, when things turn against you, is always to live the character and nature of God. To demonstrate the gospel in your attitude and actions. Our actions are never excused by our situations. Our actions must not be dependent on our situations. Well, the world is good to us. We'll be good to them. No, that's retribution. That's not the gospel. Well, so-and-so treated me well. Therefore, I'll treat them well. That's not the gospel. Well, I like what so-and-so says, so I'll listen to them. No, that's not the gospel. Our actions are never to be shaped by our situation. They are always to be shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Always. And then look at verse 12. This is the foundation that he builds us on. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What David understood was that as he was going through this moment of suffering in the Old Testament and Peter now applies it to the Christians in his day and we can still apply it today, David understood God sees God knows. You don't have to fight for it. He already sees it and he already knows. And more than that, he will judge. The Romans lived their life constantly judging. Who's greater than me? Who's lesser than me? I'll treat them accordingly. Peter and David before him says, no, God judges. You need to quit judging. You need to trust his judgment. The role of judge in the world is God's job. And he is very good at it. And we need to trust in his judgment. We can endure the evil and injustices of this world, knowing that God is in control, that he will bring his good and perfect judgment when he deems fit. Our role is not to bring the judgment. Our role is to display the gospel. When we treat people Poorly, because they have treated us poorly, we are failing to demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. When instead we respond with blessing and goodness and live the character of Jesus, we are demonstrating that we are trusting in God's ability to be the perfect judge. In the Roman world, your identity and your actions were determined by your place in your household. Set the moment you were born, largely inescapable, very difficult to move among the the different tiers of society. The household was the most basic and fundamental unit that determined everything else. We are called by the gospel of Jesus Christ to be a new household, that our relationship with one another is closer even in our unbelieving family. Not that we reject them or give up on them, but we need to come together and say, you are my brothers, you are my sisters in Christ. We must collectively display the gospel of Jesus Christ to one another and then to the world, even if it hates us. The beauty of this is that in the gospel, we're all equal. We're all equally sinners, and we can all equally be saved by Jesus Christ. There is no longer a reason to look with judgment on one another. But we need to understand this new identity must change our actions. We don't get in the church to play Calvin ball. We don't get to make up the rules as we go. We don't get to say what sounds good now, what makes us happy now, let's rip out this part of scripture, let's put this thing in. We need to say who is Jesus Christ and what has he done? Let that define who we are. Our actions show our faith. And friends, the world desperately needs to see the gospel on display. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these things are a high calling. And I think it's because of that that we struggle so often and we fall back on our own ways of thinking and acting. Things that are normal and natural to us and to our society. But according to your word, when we truly look at those motivations, those ways of dealing with one another, they are sin. And so I pray for each and every one of us. May we be shaped by the gospel of one mind when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we show love to one another, sympathy toward one another, compassion. Help us to display the gospel toward one another. And then as we interact with this world that so often turns against us, help us to display the gospel even and especially there. Because the gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. And we have been called to live it out between us and in a world that doesn't get it. May we be display of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen.